0: All right, why don't we start in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our
1: death. Amen.
0: So, um, really, we're only in the uh, 11th century, so I've kind of gone a little slow. So, in this century, like the East and the West has now been divided. So the East is um, like Greece. Uh, Where do we get frosting? Uh, <clears throat> but this other movement started, so I want to talk about this. I want to talk about uh, monks and hermits and monasticism. Because in 1098, um, there was a reform of the Benedictine order. Benedictines were the largest monastic group. And the reform was the Cistercians. And it grew rapidly due to this um, holy figure, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And the monastery of Cluny was established in Burg- Burgundy in 10, uh, sorry 910. But then uh, be- the Cistercians in the 11th century really become incredibly popular. Now, its charter allowed the monastery to function under the control of the pope. So um, what would be the advantage of having a monastery that was under the control of the pope? Anybody want to guess politically? Yeah, the local. So if you say, well, the monastery is under the control of the pope, then all the diocesan politics, you could say, oh, no, we're under the control of the pope. And think of this, this is 11th century. Just to get a message to the Pope would take a couple weeks, um, so that's the kind of boss you want—one that is completely inaccessible. <laughs> but it sounds kind of crazy. So, like, um, uh, there's a group that—I don't know. The rumor is here in Coeur d'Alene, they want to start another parish, but an Anglican parish. Um, it's a Catholic- Anglican parish that they want to start. Yes. Yeah. But the problem is, is that really, do we need a little bit more division? And their bishop would not be the Bishop of Idaho. Their bishop would be the Anglican Catholic bishop Clear in Texas. So it's a really Cistercian move. Does that make any sense? Like, I want my boss to be somebody in Texas who will never visit me. <laughs> um Oddly enough, the Council of Nicaea forbid uh, another bishop or pope to have control. Um, so that's actually kind of this strange twist. Um, but it did allow them, and this is a great advantage, to be free from local diocesan politics. And so um, they had this monastery in Chateau, um, and they're known as the white monks. So they wear complete white. Benedictines wore the black, And since they're from Citeaux, um, they're called Cistercians. And they had the third largest church in history. That's how huge they were. In the 16th century, it was absolutely huge. And the order uh, oddly emphasized simplicity and manual labor for the lay monks and um, liturgy and prayer for the other monks. And the movement, as I said, grew huge under St. Bernard of Clairvaux, developing hundreds of um, houses. And St. Bernard of Clairvaux is arguably the most important figure in the 12th century. Um, He involves himself in French politics and theological pursuits, even promoted, which he regretted, one of the Crusades. And there are thousands of Cistercian monasteries that were established. Um, And so, believe it or not, they had all these contributions. One is they reformed monasticism, made it more simple. Two, remember, church and political politics were incredibly corrupt. And you had this movement of greater simplicity of prayer and work. And they pushed simplicity, like uh, St. Bernard's, catchphrase was the narrow path that leads up to the mountain of God. Why pay attention to all that, you know, politics? Why not just work on simplicity? And so the, spir- the spirituality of the twel- 12th century focused on this return to simplicity and humility. Uh, at the same time, that uh, in the 12th century, you had this obsession with wealth and politics and power. Also, the Cistercians gave us all these technological advances. Um, farming technology, hydro uh, engineering for grain, um, the wool and cloth industry was really founded by the Cistercians. Sounds strange, but the reason why England takes the forefront on that, they learn from the Cistercians. Um, and in this side note, I just want to make communities that are. Um, united in peace, make more contributions to like the economy and advancements rather than dividing warring communities. D- so oddly enough, um, they had all these technological advances even though they believed in credible simplicity. But communities of peace and unity produce more. There's a couple other um, orders of this time period. The Commodities, that was a, in the 10th century, um... Uh, they were more hermits. Um, There's the Carthusians. uh, They were probably the most successful in that type of um, hermit's community. Um, And then you had also this other strange monastic movement of the crusading orders. So during these centuries, you had these hybrid crusading orders that they were part monastic and part military. And that included the Knights Templar, the Knights Hospitallers, the Teutonic Knights, um, and per, perhaps the oddest to us is in this element, in the, the element of this period is the creation of part monastic, part military orders. Now this is going to play with the Crusades in a minute, but <coughs> in 1119, 20 years after the Crusaders captured Jerusalem, the Knights Templar was formed. And the headquarters was on the Temple Mount. And their primary duty was to ensure the safety of Christian pilgrims. I'm going to get to the uh, Crusades in a minute, but first I want to cover the um, monastic movement. And so members would take, they take vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience and carry out a few liturgical duties But most of their work was really military, guarding pilgrimages. And they established this presence in Western Europe that became really the de facto bankers for the Holy Land. So let's say, if you're going to go to the Holy Land, you don't want to carry all your gold with you along the way. Um, Kind of a hard way to travel, right? So they invented many aspects of the capitalist banking system. Um, So the Knights Templar, yes, defensive, but also contributed to modern capitalism. Um, So you you had these kind of pop-up things. In the same um, time period in the 12th century, you have these devotionals that started. Like It sounds kind of strange. It started in Paris uh, in the 12th and 13th century you know when the priest holds up the host? Um, uh, that actually starts in this century. And <clears throat> there's a strange thing. They thought you know, the altar was so holy. They created this rude screen in front of the altar. So like you lay people can't rush the altar. Um, but the problem is you can't really see what's going on in mass. Because there's literally a fence between you and the altar. And so... That asked the priest to. It started in Paris and then became wildly popular to hold it up, and then you'd slip the priest a few extra coins to hold it up longer. Which, just to let you know, I'm open to that. Um, (laughs) But so it's called ocular communion. In this time period, um, you have less people going to communion and more people. They still go to mass. But what they just do is look upon the Eucharist. So it's called ocular communion. They had this unfortunate phrase today the gaze that says, (laughs) which I think is pretty funny, but they mean G A Z E, um, the gaze that says that that's what you do. Now, the odd part is people stopped going to communion and just started watching communion. And then you had to implement um, the Easter duty that. You had to force people that once a year you have to go to communion because people simply stopped. Now in this time period, what's interesting is we know from the very, very ancient church is older than the gospel. People always had a devotion to the Virgin Mary. We have this ancient uh, writing, uh, a prayer for Mary. That's as old as the gospels. In the 12th centuries, once again, this Marian devotion uh, kind of became very popular everywhere. Because think about it, Mary's not located to one country. Like St. Francis, now today is very popular, but he was popular among the Italians. Um, Mary is universally popular. So um, there's great devotions to the Virgin Mary. And then in the next century, starting in the 13th century, you have this other monastic movement that started. Um, and in the 13th century, Europe changes rapidly. And the church was slow and halting in accepting the changing reality. Now just to let you know, that's always going to be the case. <laughs> the church rarely is accepting how life is changing. And yet these stronger national governments that were developing in Europe, and people were trading a lot more, even with like the pilgrimages and stuff, People travel more and trade more. Um, and this money economy is developing, right? Partially due to those crusading monks. But you have now a um, money economy. And suddenly you have the rise of a new merchant class um, that has money. So St. Francis, his father, was a merchant. St. Francis was not from the aristocracy but he was from a wealthy family. So, you know, you have the, usually you just had the aristocracy and the peasants. Suddenly now you're developing a middle class and a wealthy middle class. And cities are growing rapid, rapidly. And with cities suddenly bursting, you also had the side problem of more horrific poverty and exploitations. And um, bishops and popes, at this time period, almost exclusively, claim came from the old feudal class, and as a ro- result, you know, if you grew up in the aristocracy, you really don't want to change the way things happened. Um, and in this time period, and now I'm talking about St. Francis. In time period, you had this one pope, Innocent the Third, and Innocent the Third was clearly our most talented and brilliant pope. He was a shrewd lawyer um, that was just born to rule. Um, He represented really the climax of the medieval popes. So Innocent was 37 years old when he was elected pope in 1198. And he believed that he was to be the lord of the world. And in his own words, he described himself as lower than God but higher than men. Um, yeah, you can see where this is going. He was super brilliant and super successful, um, but not really the, our most shining example of morality. He's the one who ordered Jews to wear special clothing and then taxed them, uh, and he tried to make the papacy this absolute power and make the whole church orientated towards the pope. Um, So he also changed the title. Um, The title of the pope, pope had many titles, such as the vicar of Peter and Paul, the servants of the servants of God. He's the one who changed it to the vicar of Christ. Um, So have you ever heard that term, vicar of Christ? He's the one who came up with that. But then it's kind of done away with in modern times by John Paul II, because John Paul II said, don't call me the vicar of Christ if you think about it, anybody who's been baptized is a vicar of Christ. Vicar, you know, um, representative. If you've been baptized, you're, Christ is part of you. Does that make sense? So John Paul II got the theology right, but Innocent III, he wanted him to make himself really more the emperor of the Catholic Church. Um, so I just want to say it's a time of power, of wealth, and militarization of the church. Time of power, like um, he used forgeries to increase his power. He encouraged the development of collection of uh, rules, canon law he promotes. He promulgates more laws than any other pope in this time period. And it was this period of what they call, quote-unquote, sacred violence. Innocent III blessed certain sides of a war he called a crusade to wipe out the ruling German family who offended him. Like, that's pretty bold. Those are you know, fellow Catholics. And he won their entire line to stay extinguished. Um, it really should begin to question that the man who died for others and preached love and forgiveness really would have approved this type of pope. Um, and he pushes canon law. I have to tell you, just my prejudice, I hate canon law. Um, Not that I'm against it. Canon law is good rules for order. Um, And this is a time period where canon law um, comes into play. Um, And my point being is that canon law, uh, this canon lawyer said this when I was in the seminary, canon law developed because some idiot did something. (laughs) So he said, well, don't do that again. But the problem is, is that... um, This is why I hate canon law. Like, it becomes this kind of petty way to not to get people into the kingdom of God, but just this bureaucratic process. Does that make any sense? So I'm not saying I'm against canon law, but I secretly am. Um, Because it's, like, you know, and this is going to be my point. Rules do not reform the church. Not really. Like, You can always write an exception in. Does that make any sense? Um, so you have innocent the third in one sense. Um, rules don't reform the church. Yes, it is a great throwback to Pharisees. What did reform the church was not innocent the third, gaining power and wealth. It was... This poor man from Assisi. It was this poor man, Dominic. Um, and, like, think about this. I, and this is going to be my thesis. Every time you have a problem in the world or the church, God chooses holy people who are the opposite of it. So, in the time period of the persecutions, who were all the saints? Who were the saints in the time of the early church of the persecutions? martyrs. Um, when the persecutions ended, who were all the saints in the next period? Teachers and good administrators. Um, they, so at this time period, you have the church, uh, Innocent III, who's obsessed with power and wealth. And what you're going to notice is all the saints in this time period are, are the opposite of that. They don't believe in wealth and power. And Innocent third he, third. he was so concerned about um, wealth is that anybody who came to visit him was required to offer him a gift. Uh, that would, yeah, exactly, that would line his pockets with money. And this is the world that St. Francis grew up in before his conversion. That was the dominant view of church. After f- St. Francis' conversion, His spirituality, and Dominic's, actually all the saints in this time period, is this rejection of power, glory, and status. Um, His rejection, I want to be clear, was not of the church itself. His rejection was a church of power and status, not the church itself. Does that make any sense? Because you get some people, and that's going to be in the next class, who just say, well, Let's just reject the church. But they never really reform. Um, it's um, like, anyhow, um, Francis wants to convert the whole system. Um, and in the time period, there's these people called the Cathars and the Waldensians. The Waldensians was after this very wealthy Spanish businessman, Waldo, who has this conversion. And he realizes. Uh, A life of wealth and power is the opposite of Christ. And so guess what Waldo does? He separates himself from the Catholic Church. Or the uh, um, Cathars. The Cathars, uh, they also reject the Catholic Church and they believe, they go to the extreme of everything material is evil creation is evil, materiality is evil, sex is evil, everything is evil. Anything in the world is evil. That's not the spirituality of St. Francis. St. Francis would say, no, everything in the world is good and glorious. How we're using it is evil. Does that make sense? And St. Francis doesn't reject the Catholic Church. Um, uh, He reforms it. And so, you have this beginning of what's called the mendicant life. The mendicant life is just a fancy word for beggar. Because think about this. St. Francis, St. Dominic, the other saints, they're all mendicant at this time period. And St. Francis realizes that there's just, so did Dominic, there's this great need for preaching. This sounds strange, but bishops in this time period rarely preached. Priests rarely preached um, they would celebrate mass, but they wouldn't do really any preaching. Um, and to be honest, that's—I'll be honest—is I, I think that's a problem today, because like, um, I, luckily this is not getting recorded. But like,
1: <laughs>
0: no, our former bishop Mike, who is a nice guy, you know where Mike celebrated mass every Sunday? His kitchen table. Um, like he would rarely go out to the cathedral, which he's the pastor of the cathedral, but he wouldn't. Really go there, um, would rarely go to any uh, parishes unless it was confirmation or something special. So this, it always strikes me if you're the head shepherd, shouldn't you be preaching, not celebrating Mass by yourself on your kitchen table? Um, but oddly, in this time period, you have bishops who, yeah, technically were their bishops, but um, it'd be like me. What if I? was a pastor of St. Pius, but I really only celebrated Mass here at St. Pius a couple <laughs> couple Sundays a year. Um, and you say, well, we just skip that. So Dominic and Francis, they do something amazing. They put monasteries on wheels. Like the Benedictines, if you want to go to a Benedictine monasteries, it's a out in hinterland up in the mountains. Uh, they're removed from society. Dominic and Francis, they put the monastery right in the center of cities. Cities are a new thing in this time period. So Dominic and Francis put them right there. Um, So um, anyhow, uh, Christ told his disciples to go and preach uh, and bring only what's necessary along the way. So Francis saw this as a model for his own personal life. Um, so does um, Dominic. But I would just want to talk about Francis. So Francis, there's four points of the Franciscan spirituality. One is called sin proprio, and it means um, poverty. Um, a life with absolutely no possessions. So they do have money and church buildings, um, but it's o- it's... It's nobody's personal property. And they eschewed, really, Roman privileges. Um, the brothers were to work in the field, and when needed, they'd beg. And they called themselves, quote-unquote, servants of creation. Isn't that great? Like, creation is not evil. Servants of creation. But think about it. The opposite is innocent in many bishops in this time, period, trying to get as wealthy as possible off the church but not really preaching or anything. France is the opposite. They're going to practice extreme poverty and call themselves servants of creation. The second thing is that they're known for humility. Like the Franciscan cross, do you guys know what that looks like? It's a tau, which I should have brought, but a tau is like the letter T in Greek. What's um, What's that? Oh, well, I guess you could say tau. Fine tau. Yeah, but I'm going to say tau. Um, But it's, um, it comes up, it looks exactly like a cross, but it's more like a T. It's more like our letter T. And it comes up in the Bible because if you notice in the Old Testament, all those who belong to God have a tau, a cross, on their forehead. In the book of Revelation, all the citizens of heaven have a tau on their forehead. So, If you get baptized, the first thing we do is trace the cross on your forehead. Um, If you become Catholic, the first thing we do is trace the sign of the cross on your forehead. Love that. But the tau is a Greek letter, right? But what the tau symbolizes is each Greek letter symbolizes something. The tau symbolizes humility. Isn't that like it's the name of God is humility, and it's written across everybody's forehead. So Francis loves this idea of the Tao, um, of humility. And so his life was this renunciation of privilege, um, of self-denial and mortification. He so embraces the way of the cross that he gets the stigmata. Um, so he prayed to know Christ's suffering. Think about this. Innocent the Third and the bishops believe that, well, if you're a bishop or a pope, you should have the most comfortable life as possible. Francis is going the other way. Francis trusts that in all situations, I don't Christ will provide and has this basic joy that even with rejection and deprivation, he has joy. He's the opposite of innocent third. Um, Francis' call came to reform the church by first being an example. Because think about it, bishops were choking on power and privilege and comfort and wealth, um, and Francis chooses the opposite. In fact, um, Francis' spirituality, I'm not going to get too much into it, is called betrothal spirituality. You're married to God. So Francis believed that he was married to Lady Poverty, um, so he was going to live his life in poverty and joy. And no offense, Innocent the Third. Lived his life in extreme comfort and was nothing but angry at everybody. Um, Then the third is creation. Um, Franciscan spirituality involves creation. Brother sun, sister moon, uh, all animals he was in this sacred relationship with. That's not like the others who reject, like the Cathars who said everything in creation is evil. Francis is the opposite. In a time of sacred violence, he proclaimed nonviolence in a time when a church like Pope, leaders like Pope Innocent III said that he was higher than other human beings. Francis said that he was the lowest. He didn't seek to be over anybody. He just sought to be everybody's brother, even creation itself. And the fourth part, and this sounds kind of strange, is St. Francis and preaching. Because if, a priest preached, it was usually dry and erudite because they're trying to promote this professionally, professional, scholarly, expounding how knowledgeable they are. Does that make sense? So A, priests rarely preached. And if they did, it was way above the heads of people. Um, it was usually harsh and condemning and very erudite. Francis wanted people to love the way he did. So Francis, who was a deacon, uh, Francis wasn't a priest, he was a deacon, but he could preach. Now I think more, this is my opinion, but think about that. Deacons can always have the right to preach if the priest lets them. So this is my opinion, you know, I tend to be opinionated, but like I just know, and I'm not against it, but we got a lot of, half the priests in Idaho are African, and nobody can understand them. Um, I hear that all the time. Then why don't they let the deacons preach? That's what Francis did. Priests didn't want to preach, and so Francis did. But Francis' way of preaching was so much different. Um, People said when uh, St. Francis preached, it was like they were right there with Mary or right there at the crucifixion, and they would end up crying in his homilies. So, he was that good. And have you ever heard that saying by St. Francis, preach always and use words if necessary? Lie! He never said that. Um, No, he never said that. I mean, it's, no offense, it's a great saying, but it's stupid. Um, Words were important to St. Francis. That's the very problem. Priests and bishops weren't preaching. Does that make sense? So, Everybody forgets Francis stepped up for that. He wanted to fire people up for the love of Christ, not just this nice attitude of use words if necessary. His preaching was completely different than others at the time. He believed good preaching came from this deep communion with Christ. It's not about being erudite and scholarly and harsh. And so I have to tell you, I've met some Catholics. They love authoritarian preaching. You, you know what I mean? Where a priest stands up and let me tell you about what's wrong with the people not sitting in the pews, or this other uh, parish, the guy gets up and uh, every weekend he harasses his own parishioners. And like six months ago, he got up and said, "You're all C minus Catholics." Well, that's encouraging. Like, um, like, that's the type of preaching at the time of Saint Francis. St. Francis, words are important. He wasn't an authoritarian. Um, He did tell his brothers, who are not clergy, to preach by their actions. That is true. But Francis wanted to step in where there's this vacuum of of preaching. Does that make sense? So those are the four parts. And you can see that, wow, what's going on in the world in the papacy and bishops, is the very opposite what God is blessing in St. Francis and St. Dominic. Um, St. Francis dies with a stigmata surrounded by love and a community, but poor and powerless. Innocent dies with vast wealth and power, surrounded by servants who literally raked his wealth and his body. They hated him. Um, so what kind of church do you want? Or at the same time period, you have St. Dominic. I wasn't going to go too much into St. Dominic. He's a Spanish priest who is traveling with his bishop. Um, uh, and the bishop is complaining about these heretics who are rejecting the church. And St. Dominic, like St. Francis, the light goes off. and He says, well, why don't you preach to him? Like the bishop never thought of that one. So St. Dominic starts the quote-unquote order of preachers because preaching was so rare. And Dominic takes the same vows of Francis, of believing in uh, being powerless. Now, the difference is um, the Dominicans tend to be incredibly well-educated. That would not be the Franciscan way. Um, But they believed in preaching and a life of rejecting power and privilege and wealth. Those were the holy figures. Now, just because that's all Southern Europe, but you also had um, a lot of lay holiness in this time period. Um, that likewise, these movements that rejected wealth and power and embraced the mystical. Um, and one saint, now I can't pronounce her name, uh, McTilf of Madgerg? This is why you shouldn't have a German name, because they're just too difficult. Um, but uh, she started, she, she wrote this uh, uh, kind of spiritual book called "Flowing The Flowing Light of the Godhead. It's kind of this spiritual journa- journal. And uh, she starts the Beguine movements of northern Europe, which were these independent religious movements um, free from rules and enclosures, um, and just it affected the laity. That likewise, you, uh, rather than be cloistered, we should all be seeking to renounce wealth and power and just embrace a mystical. Um, and so like she had this huge influence in the North. But my point being, whether it's Francis or Dominic or the woman's name I can't pronounce, um, you see this whole movement uh, that is the opposite in the 12th century. So with that, I got... Oh, yeah. Uh, was the Mass in Latin at this time? Um, really in Latin? Or in the um, so uh, Mass was in Latin because remember, um, uh, Charlemagne ordered it to be. So that's about 200 years it's been in uh, Latin but the preaching would have been in the vernacular. But this is also the time period of the Crusades, so I kind of want to get into the Crusades if we have time. Do you guys mind? Um, Well, here's my problem. Historically, the Crusades have been over-exaggerated for this reason. Um, Two months after 9-11, Bill Clinton gave a speech where he said, why did they attack us? I can tell you today that Arabs are still angry over the Crusades. Well, that's a bit of a myth, and I want to explore that myth. That the Crusades, um, the myth is that the Crusades are long remembered by the Arabs. In fact, the Crusades were all but forgotten in, um, in the 19th century. But in the 19th century, suddenly the anger about the Crusades came up again. And so the Arabic word for Crusades is actually a 19th century word. And when the Ottoman Empire was in deep crisis, rather than blame their decline on the corruption of the sultan's policy, they promoted this historical boogeyman that the Crusades and the West hates Islam. And the reason for the crusades were really forgotten. Um, uh, You know, Christians did recapture Jerusalem, but only for a couple decades, a very tiny amount. And even the Islamic General Solomon was all but forgotten in Islamic memory. His tomb was forgotten. And there was this German Tsar General, Wilhelm, who so admired he was, uh, Solomon was, a great military tactician. So when this German general goes, his tomb had fallen into disrepute. It's the German general who rebuilds uh, his tomb in dedication, in honor of him. It was pretty much forgotten. Um, So the anger about the Crusades, yes, It is alive today, but it's a 19th century stoked anger is my point. And crusades were just armed pilgrimages, except for the Children's Crusade, which ended terribly. And the worst part is, um, uh, yes, the Arabs in the 19th century became very angry about the crusades, but then Lutheran pastors promoted it as historical propaganda and overstated it more like invasions, because it made the Catholic Church look bad. And the point being is that the background of it is that the Crusades were really to protect pilgrims. Not that they were good things, but let's go over that. So you have, you know, Muhammad. Muhammad unites the tribes. um, And suddenly they come out of the desert conquering everything. Um, They even conquered southern Spain. But... If you remember El Cid when I was growing up, um, in 1085, Toledo was retaken from the Muslims, and nobody thought that that could ever happen. So Christians start to think wow, we're retaking Spain. Maybe we could retake Jerusalem. Now, the reconquista of Spain wasn't really completed until 1492, but it started. Then, um, so you have this thought that maybe we could retake the Holy Land. And so the lie, I want to mention, the lie is in the Crusades, the church attacked the Muslims. The truth is the Muslims started this jihad and in 1009 burned down the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They burned down several churches and killed hundreds and hundreds of pilgrimages. So in reaction to that, wrongly, um, the crusade started uh, to protect pilgrims. And it wasn't for wealth. Sometimes you say, oh, the crusades was done for wealth. No, for you to um, join a crusade, you had to pay for it yourself. So there's five major crusades. The first crusade was um, due to the violence against Christian pilgrims, So hundreds were killed, churches in Palestine were burned down. The Byzantine emperor had inquired about the possibility of soldiers from the west coming to help uh, reconquer the Holy Land for Byzantium. And the crusaders do conquer Jerusalem in 1099. And armies um, traveled by land, passing through Constantinople, Uh, There, the emperor asked them to take a vow of loyalty to the emperor. They refused. But um, in part, they retook Jerusalem because of the strife in the Muslim world. And the crusaders were able to take Antioch and then a few cities before a successful siege of Jerusalem. Um, And then the leaders of the crusades set up this uh, Latin-dominated feudal system in Jerusalem, And to be honest, they did a terrible job. Um, There's great violence against Muslims and Jews. um, But really, within a few decades, Jerusalem was reconquered by the Muslims. And then you had three other crusades um, that really didn't achieve any goal. The second crusade recaptured Edessa. Um, That's the one that, uh, the crusade that St. Bernard of Clairvaux preached, and then afterwards regretted it. Um, the, third crusade, um, uh, the Third Crusade is with uh, Saladin captured Jerusalem. And despite the participation of the King of England and France and the Holy Roman Empire, that crusade also failed. But in 1186, it's called the King's Crusade, uh, Saladin and Richard the Lionhearted signed a treaty that the Muslims can con- control Jerusalem, but Christians sh- cannot be persecuted for visiting. So that was a treat. Now, there was a fourth uh, crusade long after that, um, and uh, that went horribly wrong because they didn't try and conquer Jerusalem. They attacked Constantinople, fellow Christians. Um, and then... Um, that just exacerbated the divide between the East and the West, and then the fifth one with this children 's crusade, which uh, yeah, that horrible, went horrible we 're going to have unarmed children travel to the holy Land um, but so my point being is that not all the Crusades were even against Muslims there's one against Constantinople, innocent third called one against the German family. Does that make any sense? Um, it's, but you learn a lot in this time period. One is the danger of calling a Christian jihad. I think any jihad is wrong. But Erasmus, which we'll get into him later, said any time you like Erasmus was this brilliant uh, theologian. Um, in, he's going to come by in a couple hundred years. But uh, he spent all his money on books rather than even food. He was kind of this Christian humanist. Um, and uh, spent his time caring for the poor. But he makes this great point that any time you mix war and religion, it never turns out well. Um, And if you think it won't happen again, I think you're naive. You should learn from history. Mixing religion and war never works out. Now, I just want to get defensive here because that's my natural stance in life. Um, Have you ever heard the other propaganda myth that religion has caused most of the war, wars in history? Yes. Total lie. They've been, historians have done two separate studies. You can look at it. Yes, religion has caused 6% of the wars in human history. 6%. That means you would have had 94% of all wars regardless of religion. Does that make sense? And... I hate to say this, 3% of all wars was started by Catholics, Jews, Muslim, not Muslims, um, Buddhists, all religions. 3%. The other 3% were all started by Islam. But it doesn't even take into account that, well, like with St. Francis and St. Dominic, religion has often tried to decrease the tendency towards war. Does that make sense? So when you hear that You know, religion has caused more war than anything else. That's just atheist propaganda. Does that make sense? Or if you hear, really, that, ah, it's because of the Crusades that the Muslims hate us. uh, That's just, once again, propaganda. Um, The sad part is, the point being, what you can learn in this time period, there is no such thing as sacred violence. Um, Once you start war, who knows how it's, once you start the crusades, then you start crusades against fellow Catholics. Then with all this anger, the second thing is it started an anti-Jewish movement. Now, yeah, there, there's Muslims down there that captured Jerusalem, but what about the Jews right here in our hometown? They should be converted. That it started an anti-Jewish movement. And then you start this anti-heretical movement among fellow Catholics. Once you start anger, they can say, well, you know, you're not Catholic enough. Uh, And even more. And if you notice, there's this lack of desire for conversion of self. And that's a spirituality to St. Francis. St. Francis wants a deeper conversion for himself, St. Dominic. Um, If you're concerned about, you know, violence against who are not Catholic... You're missing the big boat that you need to be converted. The church becomes more corrupt because of the lack of preaching and the lack of desire for a deeper conversion. It's everybody else who has to change, not me. And then what you get is this preaching anger. And they did this interesting study that if a minister preaches anger, believe it or not, he becomes popular very quick. But you die out quickly. Um, If you preach love, it's not going to be popular. But the community lasts longer. So I know we all love St. Francis. They didn't like St. Francis at the time period. People thought he was weird. And um, they would throw rocks at him. Preaching love, I think, makes lasting change. It just won't make you popular. Does that make sense? So like, the saints of this time period are the very opposite of these problems. Um, fifth, I hate to say this, you have kind of that preaching of anger today. Do you guys know what Mars Hill was in Seattle? This huge, um, huge evangelical pop-up church. The guy was a great preacher, but he always painted Jesus as an MMA fighter. Um, and Jesus was coming back to kick people in the teeth. Um, and he promoted kind of this male machismoism, patriarchal, like he, from the pulpit. He would tell what sexual acts um, husbands, wives should be doing for their husbands. And it really denigrated women, but it was very popular. But he, mostly what he preached is who to be angry with. Does that make sense? And Of course, the whole thing falls apart and people's lives are ruined. But it's that same theology of power and control and money. It's the very opposite of the saints of the 11th, 12th, and 13th century. Does that make any sense? So like, learn from history. Anytime I meet a minister, Catholic or not, who's preaching anger, power, and politics, you know it's not going to end well. Follow the example of Saint Francis. No, the question was, Pope Innocent the Third is not canonized a saint. Um, you might want to pray that he's. I mean, I don't really want anybody to go to hell, but if anybody.
1: Hmm. Um,
0: Um sorry, the other problems in the 13th century is um, you have nepotism, um, you know, hiring your relatives. you have absenteeism, where I'd be named the Bishop of Idaho, but it's much easier to live in San Diego. Um, so you're the Bishop of Idaho or someplace, but you'd live someplace else and just send me my check. Literally, that would happen. So um, they created this uh, law, there is isn't canon law, that if you're named a bishop of a diocese, you have to live in that diocese. Still, now, uh, you don't really have that in some places, but um, uh, I think the same thing when it comes to parish priests. Um, but you still have that absenteeism. Does that make sense? Um, uh, I... I know I'm kind of harsh, but um, like I, I don't understand. It's a new thing that priests don't want to live next to the church. They want to live in the suburbs where nobody knows where they live. <laughs> no, sir, that's a big thing now. Um, so I don't really, I think that's a cousin to absenteeism. Does that make it like, um, so, wha- what's that? You can't get your house bombed if you get that's true, that's true. That house was bombed by the neo-Nazis and if I lived in the suburbs. But like, I, I know this one priest, I was in this one parish um, and it was my best experience. It was just so much fun, I'd say. I um, really want to go, return back there before I die. Um, but it was so poor that I had to live in one of the offices. But I have to tell you, it was one of my, my it was McCall. Um, like, there wasn't much to do, I hate to say it, work-wise, because it's a resort town. So, and I want to work. Uh, you know what I did? I skied three days a week. Um, well, because everybody's up at the ski hill, I mean, I might as well go where the sheep are. Um, Laughter. But it was massively, massively in debt. And I just lived in one of the offices. One of the best experiences I had. Now priests would never do that. Or, um, you know, honest to God, all the newly ordained priests, they want to live in a mini mansion. Um, And this time period, yeah, you had absenteeism, and you had bishops living in mansions. And then you have the opposite movement of, all the saints who are rejecting power and wealth and and, uh, privilege, I just kind of think if we're going to learn from history, don't you think that's kind of a 13th century mindset? You know what I mean? Um, uh, Yes. So, uh, Gail Toomey said she heard... Priests say, um, well, I'm trying to repeat it because people keep telling me I'm, um, well, this thing doesn't open, uh, uh, that the bishop asked them to move. Um, how do I put this politely? It's easy to say, oh, God, I would love to live next <laughs> It's easy to say, oh. I would love to live next to the church. But you know that bishop, he wants me to live in something fancy. They're just saying that. That's called BS. No offense, Gail, you're kind of innocent. You're probably not used to that. That is true. I mean, what she said is true. That priests will say, ah, they just, you don't get, you get people who are always ringing the doorbell or da-da-da-da-da. Does that make sense? That is very true. That's why, like, I I believe in having boundaries. um, But I'm a little bit different. Like, this sounds kind of strange. I've told people it's inappropriate that you're coming to my house. That's what the office is for. Like, I want to be next to the church, but there's boundary issues. Does that make any sense? I I just think it's easier to use your mouth and say, this is inappropriate. Um, Or, like, this sounds kind of strange. I'm this way. I don't have, there's no emergency number. Do you know why I don't have an emergency number? Because everything's an emergency. Um, And, You know who most has emergencies, especially at 2 a.m. in the morning? Um, People coming home from the bars. And it's always they want money. Um, So like at Holy Apostles, I finally decided, oh, this is crazy. In Holy Apostles, I was there 13 years. I had one emergency on the emergency line. But really, they could have just called the office because it was daytime. Does that make sense? so, uh, like the emergency was by those people who are, you know, abuse the system. Oh, wow. just got back from Portugal and next to the the town next door had the Knights Templar there. So wow. Their castle. Wow. Okay. They were very, very successful and that's going to get in. Their success brings about their demise, to be honest. Uh, Now, I want to get to the Avignon Papacy but we only have five minutes left and so I don't think I'll get to that. But Does that make sense when I talk about the uh, 12th and 13th century? Yes. Yeah, we could just chit-chat. So do you want my opinion on that? So I <clears throat> for those who are like watching, I can't repeat everything you said, so I'm just going to put it in notes. First, kind of the um, your first statement about social justice, about the perverting of St. Francis for wealth redistribution. Okay, so I just think that's a perversion. Like I am aggressively for social justice. I believe in it. But, like I joke with friends, what modern people call social justice, I find disgusting. It's not about justice, it's their agenda. Same with St. Francis. St. Francis cared for the poor. But St. Francis wasn't trying to take money away from anybody. He was concerned about those who were down and out. Does that uh, mean, so, like I, To use St. Francis to promote some sort of kind of Marxist regime is very opposite of St. Francis. So I just think that's an abuse. Same thing when when you um, use religion to say that we're just defending ourselves. Like, that reminds me of the Roman Empire. Like, you know, the Roman Empire, vast, conquered everything, right? But, you know, it's kind of funny. This historian said, poor Rome. Rome was always having to defend itself. You know, like, and the joke is, like, well, we've got to go attack those people to defend ourselves. No, they are just attacking people. But poor, the Roman Empire was always the victim. Does that make any sense? Like, um, Yeah, you just, it's just cheap justification. So, in the name of social justice, I don't really think they're committing social justice. And if you're angry... You find a reason to claim, I'm the victim. I'm just being religious. No, you're angry. Like, does that make any sense? So St. Francis didn't want to increase the anger of the world. He wanted to increase the peace of the world. But St. Francis, St. Dominic, all the saints of this time period wanted you to have a greater conversion. Not other people who got to pony up the bill. Not other people need to be destroyed. That's the way of Innocent the Third. Just my opinion. So, all right, we've got an hour. So um, there is also that movie I want to give as homework called After Death. Um, I know some people like Chris Fritz refuse to see it, but um, please pray for her. It's, I just, anybody else see the movie besides me? What Did you think it was a great movie? Okay, so After Death. It's playing at Hayden Theater for 6 bucks today. Well, it's also playing at the other one, but it's pricey. So let's close. What's that? Oh, I thought it was six on Tuesdays. Five dollars today, so go see the movie. Um, So let's just close with a prayer. Just secretly pray that Chris Fritz will see the movie. So in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Hello, this is Father Len MacMillan. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern supporting the podcast financially. Your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comment section of the submission form. Again, thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your
1: generosity.